I would like to thank our lecture sponsor, Gazette Newspapers, for making this series possible. And tonight, it's a pleasure to welcome our very own Nate Jaros, who is here to discuss the aquarium sea jellies and how we take care of them and exhibit them. Nate is an assistant curator of fish and invertebrates at the aquarium, and he played a major role in the development of the exhibition that you now are enjoying about jellies that debuted this past May, and also in getting the species that we have on display. Nate grew up in Nebraska. He got his bachelor's degree in biology and environmental science from Creighton University in Omaha. And in 2002, he began working as an aquarist at the Henry Dorley Zoo in Omaha. He was there for two and a half years, and while he was there, he worked with animals ranging from penguins to sharks, but found that he fell in love with sea jellies, and that became his specialty, and he ran a very successful sea jelly, moon, moon jelly culture operation that provided exhibit animals to many aquariums around the world. It, this month, Nate celebrates his 10th anniversary here at the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I think that's worth a round of applause right there. Over that period, he has spent time working in the Tropical Pacific Gallery with an emphasis on seahorse reproduction, and also as the primary aquarist in charge of sea jelly exhibits and cultures. In 2010, he was promoted to assistant curator of the Northern Pacific Gallery, but he remains responsible for the aquarium's live food and jellies sections. When we, you think of the remarkable people we have come here to lecture, sometimes easy to, to forget that we have on our own staff many, many remarkable people of equal stature to all of those who come from around the world, and one of those is with us tonight. Please join me in welcoming Nate Jaros. Good evening, everyone. Thanks, Jerry. Um, today we're going to be talking about jellyfish in aquariums. Uh, a few years ago, and I think it's been five or six now, I, I gave one of these talks and it was very specific to how to take care of jellies, how they feed, and what we do to culture them. And I'll touch on a little bit of that, but I'm going to keep it a little bit more general and talk tonight about uh, kind of the history and uh, a little bit more about what goes into the tanks that manage these, uh, these animals. So uh, the title is a, an homage to a paper that I found in uh, the late 1800s um, from over in England uh, about a researcher who was trying to keep jellyfish in aquarium. And I'll talk a little bit more about that too. So what do you think about when you hear the word jellies? Jellyfish, jelly. Um, usually it's negative, I hate to say. I, I mean, I assume that most people think of negative things. Uh, clogged power intakes, uh, uh, impact on fisheries, nuisance, nuisance at the beach, stings. Um, fortunately, we don't have uh, powerful stingers in our neighborhood, but they are out there, and there are jellies that can cause damage. Uh, blooms. Blooms are what make uh, the news, make the headlines when um, when Certain areas will just get saturated with Medusa, or there's, uh, in fact, sometimes more Medusa than water, as we see in this photograph. Others may have more of a Disney-esque version of jellies. Uh, or the topical things, uh, we all ex probably all had some sort of experience with the, uh, the stranded Valella, or the by-the-wind sailors that, that came in the spring in, in huge numbers when the wind shifted. 
or just maybe you think of a pile of goo when you're walking on the beach that really has amorphous and you don't really know anything about it. Maybe you think of deep sea, unusual or exotic, uh, alien-looking creatures, which are really fascinating. But uh, I, I tend to, to find the beauty and the grace in some of these animals, the color. This crown jelly in particular is a really fascinating specimen. Or this fried egg jelly from the Mediterranean. Local, locally, we'll get extremely long sea nettles that we attempt to display in our aquariums as well. There's also really bizarre and unusual creatures. These, uh, this is a, a benthic comb jelly. It looks kind of like a, uh, somebody lost their balloon and was shaped like a bunny, but this is under the ice in Antarctica. And they attach to the bottom and they send out fishing tentacles. The, I was kind of surprised to see this animal. I'd never really read about this. Uh, another comb jelly, they, they, they lack comb rows. This one is infesting, although it's not feeding or parasitizing the starfish, they, they just uh, they live a life more like a sea slug, but they still send out fishing tentacles and belong to the tenophore group. Some jellyfish don't have a pulsing, swimming medusa phase. These are called star medusa. They're a, a benthic jellyfish that live their entire life attached to substrate. A little bit about Nadaria. Um, everybody may be kind of familiar with this. There'll be a quiz later, so take notes. Um, no, this is a pretty extensive list of the jellies. It kind of shows the relationship between the corals and anemones and the anthozoa group, and then the uh, medusazoa, which is kind of diverse, and most of which have a, a, a free-swimming medusa stage, which is what's most applicable to the aquariums. Um, most of what we display belong to just a few groups here. Oh. Um, the semiastoma, which is going to be your kind of your common jellies, your nettles and your moon jellies, and rhizostome, which we're featuring this summer, oftentimes tropical, um, colorful, fast pulsing jellies. And then there's this whole section of hydrozoa, which is very complex and intricate, most of which we kind of live in this zone mostly, which is a leptomedusa and occasionally Samantha medusa as well. But there's a, a lot of deep water specimens that have yet to be described or even discovered in this, this diverse group. Some have lost the typical life cycle that I hope we kind of all have a basic grasp of, of the, the, the two-part life stage of part, partially attached to the bottom and then producing these free-swimming medusa. But some of the medusa have been given up the polyp stage where they, uh, their larvae did develop directly into medusa as well. But applicable to aquariums are also comb jellies. Uh, they used to be really closely grouped with uh, nadarian jellies. But in fact, uh, the more that scientists study this jelly, the, the further apart they're becoming. In fact, uh, there was a little bit of controversy amongst the, uh, the animal classification system when the, the, the nadarians, or the tenophores, I'm sorry, were, were separated out based on the study of their nervous system and their, uh, their genome mapping. Um, giving rise to the the fact that they probably branched off earlier than what what was thought to be one of the most primitive animals from this from this family tree, which are sponges. So, from what I hear, the sponge people are not too happy about this. So this brings us to jellyfish and aquariums. Um, and the I, I found a really interesting note in the 1950s. Um, they collect large, beautiful jellyfish specimens and put them in an aquarium, but they just sit on the bottom. They didn't know how to feed them or suspend them, so they would just die in a couple of days. So they put a button and a piece of fishing line through the bell and suspended it in the middle of the tank. These, are, of course, are just urchin tests. I couldn't find a picture. I wish I had a black and white photo of this, but I didn't. Um, they still only lived about three days, but at least they would stay in the middle, and they'd pulse up, and they'd slide back down to the button. 
But that wasn't going to last. They needed to circulate these beasts off the bottom. So there's just simply not enough interns with sticks to, to do so. So they looked at what uh, academia was doing. And uh, this started back in the late 1800s, the paper that I, I named my little talk after. A really wonderful paper. If you have a chance, you should read it. But uh, it talks about this guy, uh, Edward Brown, who would study jellyfish. He'd bring them back, put them in a beaker. And they'd inevitably just kind of settle. They'd pulse around a little bit and settle. and. Uh, and inevitably do poorly because of that. So he knew they needed to be suspended. So he built this contraption, which is pretty innovative. It's this lever system with a glass plate inside. It's a, the picture's terrible, I'm sorry, but there's this, uh, this basin with a glass plate inside, and it's on a lever here. And on this side is something that operates similar to like a toilet, so a toilet basin. It's going to fill up with water and create a siphon and there's a float inside, so every time it goes down, it will shift the, the glass plate down, and it'll create just enough current to keep jellies suspended long enough for him to study them, classify them, even get some uh, primitive reproduction out of them. This same scientist in 1907 kind of built a little bit more sophisticated method of keeping primarily hydroids, which is the benthic life stage of the hydrozoan jelly, that whole class, and he, he knew that they needed water flow. So he set up this aquarium that provided continuous water flow using a, an airlift, something that we still sometimes use in aquariums today. A simple way of moving water by using uh, compressed air. So as you can kind of see, as the air bubbles rise in this tube, it pulls water in through this tube and he would put the hydroids that he's studying in here and in that way they would, they would do better. They actually had really good diets back then from some of the papers I read. Diets that are comparable to what we have because these are all coastal research facilities. So they just go collect copepods and copepodnoplii or baby copepods. And they, they fed a pretty good diet to these animals. So as long as they could keep water quality and once they discovered the importance of water movement, they could uh, really keep these animals alive. In the 30s, based on some of this early work by Edward Brown, some researchers who were studying more about the reproductive stages and the life cycles of hydrozoans wanted to keep multiple species, and they didn't want to build such a large contraption. So they found that their work was most importantly done in very small glass beakers. So they had a very innovative system of, uh, with pulleys and ropes and wires and uh, an automatic uh, pipette brush or pipette cleaner that would uh, oscillate the, the rope and it would, uh, on all this, this table, it would, it would, these little rods would move these, this little glass plate inside the beaker just back and forth just a little bit to create that little bit of current that these small animals needed just to, to minimize the amount of time that they had to clean the water and change the water due to stagnation and then to keep them in suspension. And then there's Yoshitaki, I'm, I'm not sure if it's pronounced Abe or Abe, I'll say Abe and uh, correct me if I'm wrong if you no Japanese pronunciation, but he's kind of the godfather of aquarium jelly keeping. The, the work that he did in the late 60s and the influence that he had on all the other aquariums that then subsequently kept jellies and, or even donated the polyps that he donated to them really kind of perpetuated the jelly movement in an aquarium. So he worked at an aquarium at the Ueno Zoo Aquarium. And he basically had a responsibility of a series of small aquariums, and he brought in what, what we refer to as live rock, or just rock taken from the environment that still has all sorts of microfauna on it. And uh, some of that microfauna included uh, some moon jelly polyps. And without expecting it, one day he comes in and he sees that his uh, aquarium had filled with a phyra. And he became curious and wanted to try to keep them. So he contacted some of the 
Japanese experts or scientists that had been doing some some jellyfish research, and they kind of aided him in his quest. And uh, before long, he was culturing a fairly large number of jellyfish. He referred to as his jellyfish factory, and he had a lot of influence uh, at the same time at the Inosho Aquarium. A young lady named Kazuko Shimura was. Uh, she learned his aquaculture techniques for moon jellies, but she was also the first to kind of dabble in a, a variety of species that she could find locally in uh, Japanese water. Over in Europe, in England, primarily, there was uh, Wolf Grieve, who was um, starting to study, or he designed this tank to observe and describe um, zooplankton, not just jellies, but jellies too, but also copepods and all these other animals. So. This uh, plankton chrysal, as he coined the phrase, was a kind of a cylindrical tank using airflow, compressed airflow again, to create an upwell in a, in a center of a column, but also force water down through a series of, uh, of, uh, of tubes that, that interlock with each other to create a jet of water to cr that creates basically a circular current inside this tank. And with this and with some substrate, he was able to improve uh, the water quality in this vessel and really kind of uh, do interesting things with keeping these animals longer term. Here's a, a kind of a 3D photo. It's not as good, but it kind of maybe shows the, the dimensions of this tank a little bit better than the, the two-dimensional drawing. Um, the influence that, that, that this uh, type of tank had, there was a few aquariums in the 70s and 80s who also received the, the culture information from, from Japan, but applied some of the, the tank design principles from Europe and had a lot of success culturing not just moon jellies, but other species as well. This is, uh, this is important because these uh, were landlocked aquariums that couldn't just run out to the, to the shore and collect wild specimens. So they needed to rely on aquaculture to sustain their exhibits. And following on Greaves' work is uh, somebody who worked locally, um, William Hamner, who took this, uh, this plankton chrysal, and he adapted a version for use at sea. So he has a basically a mobile plankton chrysal that can suspend uh, collected medusa so they can be described at sea. But the, the interesting thing about his design was the added feature of really convenient viewing. Uh, the side panel made it really easy to see, whereas the kind of the cylindrical type or version of this tank was more challenging to view the medusa. This is really applicable for this talk because um, Bill Hamner spent time with the folks at Monterey Bay Aquarium developing some of their early jellyfish tanks, which are this, all the same principles that, that we and other aquariums apply to, dis to display jellyfish around the world. They, uh, back in 1985, um, there was an aquarist um, at Monterey Bay Aquarium. Her name was Freya Sumner, and she was tasked with uh, making a small Medusa exhibit, a jellyfish exhibit, in a temporary exhibit called The Living Treasures of the Pacific. This is about 1985. And she, along with David Powell, um, kind of came up with some innovative techniques of keeping and culturing those animals. And they became pretty popular, so they wanted to push for a all jellyfish exhibit. And um, evidently, there was some reluctance on the part of the decision makers at Monterey thinking that there wouldn't be enough interest in such a, a temporary exhibit that was all jellyfish. But they ended up doing it in uh, 1992, and it became one of their most popular temporary exhibits um, to date. Um, it was called Planet of Jellies, and they had really innovative techniques modifying that uh, plankton chrysal into 
um, several different types that made it easy to care for these jellies, uh, innovative lighting techniques, and I'll get into some of those in a minute. Then in 1996, they opened their Outer Bay exhibit, which had a permanent jelly collection. And then in 03 and 2012, they had two very successful uh, temporary exhibits in Jelly's Living Art and Jelly's Experience. Um, a lot of those exhibits uh, had influence on both the species they worked with and the tech rearing techniques that have been applied at a lot of other aquariums, including our own. So the modification of this plankton chrysal kind of took that cylindrical shape and turned it vertically and kind of basically compressed it inside an aquarium. The, the picture is bad, but the drawing is good. So it's a basically a narrow um, circular wheel, if you will, um, with water flow, laminar water flow moving quickly around the outside with a very still area in the middle. So the idea is that planktonic animals that don't generally come in contact with anything solid if they were to, to near the edge of the aquarium or the bottom of the aquarium, they'd be swept up into the middle where it was calm and they could be observed or displayed in aquariums. It was, it's a fairly complicated tank. There's multiple point sources for flow and areas where water is exiting the tank. And jellyfish, being mindless blobs, will drift with outflowing water. So they needed to be protected from that outflowing water. So there's a, a, a fine screen and then that that laminar flow of water goes right across that screen, and uh, if they were to near that, they'd be swept away as well. But this, uh, here's a photograph of one in action with some jellies in it. But the whole, this whole circle is basically underwater with a lid, difficult to access, difficult to clean. And it's, it's a wonderful tank for very, very sensitive animals. Um, one, the paper I had up there a minute ago talked about the the, some of the preliminary studies with the Caribbean spiny lobster, which are very difficult larvae to rear, and they do well in an environment like that. Fortunately for us, as fragile as jellyfish are, there are some species that are a little bit hardier than others, and, and then we don't we can apply the principles of that what they call true chrysal, and we use uh, what we call pseudo chrysals, which have the same rounded bottom, the same laminar flow that runs across the screen, but the the tops are open, easy to access, easy to clean. And the more, as time went on, the more attempted jelly tanks, the, the more we kind of found that as long as you prevent the jellies from settling down to the bottom or um, sticking to the sides, that you can keep a, a lot of different styles of tanks. This is a cylinder tank right here at Aquarium of the Pacific. When we opened, was a schooling fish, and we retrofitted it to become a, a jellyfish tank. The design is two point sources of water, which are in yellow. One supplies a, a, a chamber in the bottom that upwells water through the center. The other, a ring around the perimeter of the floor with water running parallel to the floor. Idea being if a jellyfish were to settle, the water movement would, would prevent them from sticking to the floor and then they'd be swept up in the middle. Underneath is a manifold that runs to an external leveling pipe that'll keep the water level high. And uh, there's a little cross section of the floor when it's removed for maintenance. We've also found that uh, some species do well in a tank that we call a tumbler. It's kind of it uses some of the similar principles, except it's more more of a square or a box. This is good for jellies that that really like horizontal space. Maybe they're strong pulsers, good swimmers. They don't need the currents to maintain their midwater stature. They can do it on their own. So you want to give them room so they're not constantly bumping the sides. Uh, this this tank I designed there's originally as a square. And uh, it was a meeting with our VP of operations. Don't tell him I told you this, but uh, 
he wanted to keep the, the fronts of the tanks in a similar fashion. It's in an area where several of the tanks are, are both fronted or rounded. So he's like, can we make it like that? And I'm like, oh, I can change my design. I don't know how it'll work. And it ended up being one of the better features of the tank. Um, the jellyfish really tend to sit um, right in the, that little, that bowed area in the front, which gets them really close to the visitors. That's where the, the lights are. These jellyfish require light, light corals to, to feed this, the symbiotic algae that lives within their tissues. So it, uh, it made it a really nice effect. So once you've designed your tank and you can suspend your jellies, one of the next most important things, not, I guess I shouldn't say one of the next most important things, but from an aesthetic standpoint is lighting. So you need to show off the jellies and show off their colors. So lighting techniques. Um, a tank that we just did for this summer, we used um, tank lighting from underneath the tank to illuminate the whole animal and not just the top and to highlight the tentacles. This is kind of a cross-section cross of the floor um, at the, the removable floor here, and there's light underneath. And this is kind of the effect that it gives with moon jellies. Everything's blacked out, but the jellies can glow, and you can see their tentacles really well in a tank like that. One of the concepts that, that most places took from those early years in Monterey was the kind of the, what we call the infinite blue background. So the, the, given the appearance that the jelly's drifting in the blue sea, and you can't really tell where the back of the tank is. So this is done today with a special colored acrylic that with with a backlight on it and it gives kind of the effect of just a open ocean behind the jelly which is where they'd live there's been a lot of innovative design over the years um, this is a tank in a, in a South Korean aquarium it was designed by some folks right here in California Tenji Design Corporation out of uh, Monterey Bay and they kind of apply principles of the pseudocrysal along with the cylinder. So basically they have these screen sections at the top to, that uh, prevent the, or that the water leaves from and the laminar flow where the jellies go across. And the bottom of the tanks are designed more like a cylinder with kind of an upwell through a false floor. This is a... This is a tank that's very similar that some of you may have seen if you've been to the Seattle Aquarium. Uh, it's the same kind of concept. And uh, I just want the folks that work with me to not complain about some of my designs being inaccessible. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really wonderful aquarium from the Inoshima Aquarium in uh, Japan. And it's a orb aquarium built uh, to act more like a fountain. So. It's a closed, probably acrylic ball that has water running around the outside of it into a basin. So um, the picture doesn't do it as much justice, but the water would be flowing all the time. So the jellies would be blurry, but it would create more of an artistic piece. And then the projected jelly in the ceiling gives it even more appeal. The Kamo Aquarium in uh, Japan as well. As you, if, you're, if you're not picking up on a theme, Japan has played an integral role in jellyfish and aquariums. And uh, to this day, it's doing a lot of the innovation. Uh, this tank that was recently opened more than doubled the largest jellyfish aquarium at the time, which was the Georgia Aquarium Chrysal, um, 13,000 gallons. Um, there's approximately 10,000 moon jellies in the photo. I couldn't find too much about the dimensions, but I can imagine it's a nightmare to take care of. But it, it creates a pretty amazing uh, aquarium to look at. Monterey's had its shares innovations, as I mentioned over the years. The lower uh, right-hand photo is their Jellies Living Art exhibit where they utilize mirrors to get that same effect that 
that Japan was doing with actual jellies and just uh, creating a mirrored room so the tanks seemed like they went on. And they did the same thing in the living or the uh, jellies experience gallery with uh, with cylindrical tanks in a mirrored room that, that created that infinite look. Right here at Aquarium of the Pacific, we were, unfortunately to say we weren't the first people to open a moon jelly tank, but I think we were probably the first people to do it very successfully. And there's others that have, have followed and done uh, successful moon jelly touch aquariums. And it, it takes a really rock solid culture, jellyfish factory, if you will, to uh, sustain a, a tank like this. I say that, but uh, don't get me wrong, the, the jellies don't do poorly in this tank. We, we really don't replace them very often. We have enough in the tank and the, the odds of the same jelly being touched in the same place is, is pretty low. So they, they do well. And um, I think that's important in the design element of the tank. Jellyfish in the home aquariums or, or home market are becoming more and more innovative and interesting looking. There's kind of a whole ultra modern kind of uh, design that's going out there and more and more places that are either culturing or collecting jellies to sell into the hobby, one of which is a colleague. Give them a shout out at PB and Jellies. Uh, fluorescing jellies, Evan, if you want to play the video, this is one of my kind of favorite new innovations in displaying jellies. And it's not just jellies, this is something that we that is being currently utilized with corals as well, but using uh, blue spectrum light and a yellow filter in front of a tank will show a jellyfish's natural fluorescence. These are Eulerian jellies, cross jellies. But this is a fluorescence and then not to be confused with bioluminescence. A bioluminescence is a chemical light that, the, that an animal could create. This is a re-emitted light that these animals, that was the flower's hat jelly, use. And uh, it's kind of, there's been some studies recently as to why jellies use this. And uh, with the flower's hat anyway, a study done had a put juvenile rockfish in a tank with one of these guys with the divider so they couldn't be consumed. But they, uh, they showed a significant prey strike towards the illuminated tips of the tentacles. So it's, it was kind of concluded that, the, that at least with that jelly, they use it to attract prey. Probably similar in a lot of the other species since the luminescence is located around the tentacle base. But this... Uh, this feature we, we're currently utilizing on our flower set jellies in the temporary gallery and uh, we'll probably, as the summer goes on and into the winter, use some other species to display this luminescence or the, this fluorescence as well. So it wouldn't be a complete talk without at least touching on some of the other elements that uh, are necessary for keeping jellyfish in aquariums. So feeding is a huge part of it, nutrition being one of the, the the core factors in keeping these animals alive for any length of time or getting them to reproduce. We use a, a variety of diets. This isn't everything we use, but these are kind of the base, base blocks. We use a cultured artemia or sea monkeys up here. This is something that we have a, a live foods aquarist that, uh, that works full time just providing food, not just for our jellies, but any of our animals that, that need live prey, the fish that we culture, other invertebrates that we culture as well. Um, rotifers are incredibly important. They're smaller than the Artemia, which we also culture, and they sustain a lot of the polyps, the smallmouth polyps, or the, the young jellies. We sometimes collect wild copepods and have ambition of uh, culturing more of this type of animal that are, that are highly nutritious and probably one of the 
the core diets of wild jellies around the world. There is a hierarchy in jellyfish community as far as predation goes, and uh, not many top this uh, egg yolk jelly that we sometimes find off our coast and ranges up to Alaska, but they, they'll eat almost any other jelly. These are lion's mane jellies, which are also what we call medusivores, eating other jellies. And this, this, you can see this guy's taken down two at once. But there are jellyfish that we cannot grow unless we give them a significant amount of uh, gelatinous prey. So in addition to our live foods aquarists working around the clock, our jellyfish aquarists are constantly working to culture a quantity of uh, moon jellies, which are kind of one of the more easy species to culture to provide food to sustain these larger predator, predatory jellies. And then we use some frozen diets as well. I have krill pictured here, and we use a myriad of others and uh, other supplements as well. But it is a very important part, as I said. Acquiring specimens, that's a, a big part of displaying specimens as well. There's multiple ways that you can, you can get jellies for your aquarium, especially these days, and especially as more and more people are just using uh, jellyfish exhibits in public aquariums and is the home, in the home, as I mentioned before. Um, probably the, one of the most traditional ways is walking on docks. You can find, sometimes find them just at the surface or cruising around on small boats looking for them because a lot of times if the conditions are right, the medusa will pulse right up to the surface. Other techniques employed are in this photograph are blue water diving, which is a fantastic dive if you ever have an opportunity to do it. But basically you can be diving in a thousand or two thousand foot depth. Um, in the, you don't want to lose track of your buoyancy and drift down with no points of reference in sight. So you basically tether yourself to your dive team and to the boat as well to provide a level of safety so nobody drifts away. And at that point, you just drift in open blue and look for gelatinous specimens. Some areas of the, the ocean are kind of more predictable with Medusa. Uh, Monterey Bay has a nice little um, upwelling zone right off their shore where they get a lot of medusa. Ours is a little less predictable, so sometimes we go out on these dives and drop a five Aquarius in the water and everybody just sits there twiddling their thumbs and freezing and looking for medusa and not finding any. But um, it's still a really good dive, and uh, you can see other animals that we potentially can't collect. But um, when I first moved from Nebraska to Southern California, it happened to be uh, 2005, and there was an El Nino summer. And one of the first times I went to the beach as this jellyfish enthusiast, I go to Newport Beach, and there's dozens, if not hundreds, of purple striped jellies and black jellies. And I'm just like, I'm patting myself on the back. Good move to California. And I've never seen it like that since in 10 years. So we'll see if next year's El Nino brings jellies back. Um, but that's, that's kind of collecting wild specimens is a a necessity to, to get culture started because uh, that's probably where we, we spend most of our reliance on uh, stocking these aquariums is culturing our own specimens. Um, it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and we have a really great staff that, uh, that does this. But I have kind of created a little simplified drawing of, um, overly simplified drawing of what, uh, what goes into this. But I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. This could be an entire lecture and I just wanted to kind of just touch on it. Um, we have little tanks, small tanks, generally not more than about a foot long, that we keep polyps in when they settle on various media, plastic and glass petri dishes primarily. And we put a small amount of water flow in, have the conditions just right, good diet, proper temperature, and um, generally a shift in their temperature um, 
representing a change in season will cause them to go into this Medusa production phase or the, they shift into a, to strobilation. So they kind of, each polyp will stack up with the fire and they'll break off one by one, swim away, and they, using gravity, this water will outflow into what we call a catch basin. It has a fine screen across one side that the, the small jellies can't pass through and there they're quantified and moved into other small basins that look very similar and they're, they're given proper diets in a very clean environment. And uh, if everything goes right, they grow. And we move them into small pseudochrysals. Um, sometimes the, an individual jelly might pass through six or seven of these t rearing tanks before they go to exhibit. And they just grow and they get slightly bigger. And once they make it to exhibit, they stretch out. They look wonderful. These are purple striped jellies we had in the SoCal Gallery recently. And then they're ready for selfies. <laughs> and then, uh, sometimes they mature, uh, hopefully they mature, and uh, we can identify males and females. And there's lots of different ways to reproduce them, but one way is to gently remove small clippings of their gonad material, and we put them into a petri dish, and there's a little bit of a hocus pocus, and we look for larvae. And then that larvae then settle into new polyps, which can uh, generate new cultures. So if there aren't jellies to collect and our cultures are, are lacking. We re will rely on the help of other aquariums that are also culturing jellies to ship um, jellyfish. We've had jellies shipped from around the world to here. And we've also in turn, when, when our cultures are going well, we ship our excess specimens that we don't need for exhibit out to other aquariums. So there's, there's quite a network. No, no public aquariums will charge each other for jellies. You just, the recipient pays for the shipping fee and they go into bags of water. Um, you've probably all seen a fish in a plastic bag somewhere at some point in your life and you'll you kind of remember there's a part of its air because that air has to sustain the, the oxygen content in the, in the bag. With jellyfish, they're low oxygen demand users and that air pocket would actually destroy them in shipment because as that, if that bag was shake, shaken or stirred or if the box were flipped upside down, those air bubbles can, can get into the tissue of the jellies and destroy them. So there's some uh, really interesting experiments um, done with uh, uh, semi-permeable uh, balloons that are filled with small amounts of oxygen for extended shipments, but um, that they could put in the water and that oxygen would just diffuse through the balloon to keep that water oxygenated. But they really don't need much, so a lot of times we'll do an overnight shipment to, to another state here in the U.S., and really all they need is to be filled with water and packed properly. Just a look at some of the research that I did. And some special thanks. I uh, wanted to thank my curator, Sandy Troutwine, for her contribution. She's doing a little, I think, a jellyfish dance kind of thing there. <laughs> and the wonderful jellyfish team, the aquarists that do all the culture and all the display work, Josh and Valerie, who are both here tonight. Give them all a round of applause for a great job they've done.